afternoon, good evening, good metal. My name's Coop and welcome to Spoken Metal Show. This episode is a an interesting one in, in many respects because it was suggested by you, by the listeners. It was put together from, from suggestions that have come from the listeners. Often when you listen to podcasts, they say, oh, we've had lots of messages and people and uh, have got in touch and all that. And it's probably a load of nonsense that no one's really got in touch with them and they they try and you know make out that there's this interaction that goes on that isn't really there. But in the case of the Spoken Metal Show, it is there. I get do get messages, a lot of messages, suggesting episodes and bands I should check out and that type of thing. And the interview that you're going to hear now with uh, with Andrew Field is is one example of that. I put it out there. Who who should I be talking to? Who should I be listening to? Who would you like to hear on the show? And some people put forward that, you know, Andrew would be a great choice. Uh, Andrew from a- a- APF Records. I'd never heard of them. And that's a, a really bad thing in this day and age when I consider myself someone who like listens to, tries to find a lot of new music and interesting music of, of the heavy ilk. And and I'd not heard of them. I wasn't friends with, with, with Andrew or anything like that. It wasn't really in my world. And wow, was I missing out on, on a lot of great stuff. And so connected with Andrew, who's super nice, as you'll 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 find on on the podcast, and just fell down the rabbit hole of of APF's records, their whole back catalogue, and discovered some superb bands from Under, through to Possessor, to what I'm currently listening to at the uh, at the moment, Bong Cauldron, and there's just some superb sort of stoner metal and sludge and all the rest of it going on there, and I just fell down a massive rabbit hole of their stuff. It's like you never realising that, that, that these bands are, are even out. We now listen to the, the show the, coming up. Now, hopefully, you are encouraged to check out these bands as well. And, it, and it, the conversation with Andrew is really interesting on a number of levels, and so much as that we talk about, obviously, his, his, his background with music and then leading on to starting a record label, which in of itself is absolutely fascinating but also about the, the bands on a label and, and what it means to be independent and what it, some of these bands are maybe missed by, you know, we don't, we don't see these a, a, a lot, you know, we don't, they don't get the, the coverage. And if you're not really, 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 really searching for them, these bands can get missed. And there's some superb music out there. There's, there's absolutely superb bands. And so hopefully you get that from this, from this. And the whole thing's like, cyclical it's it's a 360 of this is that if you hopefully you listen to this find some bands that you like and then i suggest that i go and interview these bands or interview these people involved in this thing and, and everybody kind of wins from that it becomes this that's how a scene is that's how our music should be there's no greater joy for me that than when someone goes have you heard this band and i say no i'm slightly embarrassed because i'm like well maybe i should have known that band but then there's a, a wonderful thing where i go back and find their back catalog and i'm one of those People that just goes through the back catalogue of, of, of a band, searching through and finding some great stuff, and I've uncovered some absolute great gems from this. And this, so this is a really nice conversation. We could have, as we allude to in this in in the episode, we could have talked about his his time at, at a bigger record label and working with 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 the majors. But as he said, there are other places you can find that, and I always try to strive to get a different perspective when I sit down with someone. I've got a couple of interviews coming up where those people have been on podcasts and they've talked about the, the headline things that they, they, they obviously talk about. And that's, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I do try and approach it slightly differently in so much as that I try and look at 
different facets that they're maybe not used to talking about, or maybe not, someone's not really asked them. So we 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 lent into that with, with Andrew, and I think you'll really enjoy it. I, this was easily one of the one of the, the funnest. That's is that a word? Funnest to, to one show I, show I've done, and it totally came from the fans. And once again, if there are people you want me to sit down and have a chat with who you think would be interesting, then please by all means suggest people. I have a clutch of them coming up that were suggested by other people and uh or by the by the fans and i hopefully i'm i try to be very active as they say on on the social media in in so much as i try to talk quite quickly with people and try and get back to them as quite quick quickly sometimes i do sometimes i don't but try to make that happen because this is your show this is my show that i put forward but it's it's literally nothing without the guests it's nothing without the, the listeners and it's certainly in this case nothing without the feedback from the listeners so i appreciate your time and people uh, give me the list of people i should check out and list of people should get on the show and that's how this show has stayed to be in over 100 episodes and will continue so thanks again and i really hope you enjoy this sit down with mr andrew field ladies and gentlemen so it's it's really nice to sit down with uh, with mr andrew field uh, how are you doing sir uh evening yep very good uh, are you well I'm doing okay, mate. I'm doing it like we said just before we came on. I'm learning Zoom now. I don't want to, but I'm learning Zoom. I'm learning all the many streaming places and you can do to do this thing. And and I didn't really like it. And I've had to learn to like it, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> these are the things that you must do. Um, well, we, we've got a lot to get through. Ladies and gentlemen, the, you know, the, Andrew's like one of those maybe unsung heroes, certainly, you know, someone who's, behind some of the records that you may have bought and certainly listened to and uh, a, a huge supporter of the scene in, in many ways. Um, and we'll get on to APF records in good time. I think, I think that's probably what a lot of people want to hear us talk about. But for me, I always find it very interesting to go all the way back to when you first hear music and, and what that, what form that takes, uh, what styles and genres and stuff and, and, and kind of where did that start for you? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was really lucky in that I, I grew up in a, a house that was full of music. Um, and, uh, some of it, uh, <laughs> was very much the time, you know, I grew up in the, uh, seventies. So my parents listened to Abbott and the Carpenters and, uh, uh, things like that. And a lot of that stuck with me, but the first album that I distinctly remember, uh, really, getting me into music was uh, out of the blue by ELO electric light orchestra. Mm. And I'll be honest, I was probably seven. And the first thing that blew me away was the album sleeve. Uh, yeah, with yeah. That spaceship on the front, but also my dad had the vinyl and it was a triple gatefold sleeve. So you yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's when they mad. did that then, type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So that blew me away. And then he put the music on and, uh, you know, oh, <clears throat> Back in 1978, I can tell you that uh, some of the songs are out of the blue sounded like nothing else on earth. Mm. Um, and so certainly that was that was the moment where music became something that I listened to rather than heard. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It, and it was like, you know, that a lot of back then, you know, the early 70s, 70s, and, almost, and certainly coming into the 80s, there was, I don't remember, because I, I, I was born in 75, and I don't, I don't remember there being a heavy emphasis on genres. There was just this was the, an album by this band. It, it didn't seem as more um, as many genres out there as I do now, where everything is this band and it's this genre. It, 
it wasn't presented like that back then. It was presented as here's the next band by this this particular band. Yeah, hello, you know, for whatever you want to, whatever term you want to describe them, rock or whatever you want to say the ELO are. You did you never saw it that way. You know, it was only later on that it seemed to get tags to them. And I remember like, yeah, ELO's such a, such iconography in the in the uh, in the album covers. And that must have been when you 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 have that cl- have that classic vision of of a young Andrew sitting there in a in a bedroom with the gatefold out with all the lyrics and various bits and pieces with the headphones on or or a turntable listening to music. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, totally. And also, I mean, yeah, with with hindsight, looking back, you, you listen to music and it either connected or it didn't. You, I was, you know, I wasn't even ten, mm. and so it didn't matter anything. You know, like some of the stuff we have now. We, like you said, what genre is it? What tag is it? Is it cool? Yeah, yeah, kind of yeah. It didn't matter. I'm sure that um, to people that are into Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin in the 70s, the ELO just were not cool. Mm. Yeah, but I, I haven't mean, even heard. I haven't even heard Black Sabbath or Led Zeppelin back in. 70s, yeah, you know? but there was there was so much. I mean, that is a really pivotal time to be listening to music. There was so much great stuff around that era. Certainly, the birth of the genres that we'll talk about later. But it was you know something like ABBA. When you listen to ABBA, it, you, it's when you listen to something that you know is good, irrespective of genres, of styles, or whatever. But it's so obviously well done; it transcends that because it's just it's you know it's good. I remember hearing uh, "Money, Money, Money" um, by ABBA, and it didn't follow any conventions that I'd seen before in, in pop music or whatever. And it, but you knew it was good, and I gravitated to that when I listened to that. I, I, I some of those early sort of. Um, pop records, if you will, are incredibly progressive, incredibly inventive, and 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 it's only now I think going back I realised just how much great stuff was recorded around that time. So when you started with kind of ELO and you, you, your father's record collection, was there a particular artist that you started to gravitate towards towards a particular? Uh, well, just sticking with ELO, I became obsessed with them. All oh, right, it was ELO, okay. I mean, yeah, they were they were my first band because mm. after um, Out of the Blue, it was like, right, Dad, what else have they done? And then he bought <laughs> the World Record, and that had yeah. an amazing sleeve and amazing songs. And then there was Face the Music, mm. which had an amazing sleeve, and then it had it had backwards um, singing at the beginning, yeah. which was a naughty because it's like, oh my God, Satan, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then, you know, after Out of the Blue, Discovery came out, which had an amazing sleeve and great riffs. And, and so very much they were formation. You know, on ABBA, mm. I think the thing is, my mum was obsessed with ABBA and she played them to death. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, as an example, in the early 80s, when I would have been sort of 10, 12, I remember we went on holiday and my, we hired a car. Yeah. Mm. And my mum took one album with her, which was Super Trooper by ABBA. Yeah? Sure. And we must have listened to that album all the way through a hundred times on that holiday. So by the time I got back from holiday, I knew that that album inside out. Everything, sing yeah. Song. yeah. Um, and that sticks with you. And you know, without going on too much, you know, whenever you. No, no by the way, Andrew, by the way, a lot of people will like and enjoy you going on. I, that's the <laughs> whole reason. I, ladies and gentlemen, the reason we get, we get people on the show is because every other podcast goes, here's 20 minutes to talk about your entire life history. And we can't go in in depth, and there's a whole pre preloaded questions. No, no, we'll go as long as my laptop allows me to go. Uh, it's fine. You go on, Andrew. Have at it. No problems at all, sir. No, cool. I was going to say, you know, whenever you, uh, you know, uh, um, without jumping around too much, you know, uh, the the godfathers of the scene that I, I worship, you know, like 
Sabbath, they're playing mm-hmm. purple. Uh, in fact, almost any major artist, when they're interviewed and they talk about their influences, they often talk about what they heard as kids. Yes, yeah? yes. Um, and uh, certainly I think it's really true that stuff that you, that you have drummed into you as a kid stays with you your whole life. Yeah. Yeah. So mm. whilst, you know, whilst um, uh, yeah, yeah, ABBA have absolutely nothing to do with my music taste today mm. or with APF Records, if I have just the radio one and an ABBA song comes on, yeah, mm. I'm transfixed, I'm transformed, I'm, I'm away back to my childhood. Yeah, remembering great formative, incredibly powerful sort of memories get brought up by these things. And and you know, I know plenty. I know lots and lots of bands who play very extreme heavy music and whatever it may be. And there's always two or three uh, artists that they love. You would never associate with their music, but it's still a driving and powerful force when they want to create something. You know, I know two or three very famous heavy bands that don't listen to metal before they go on stage. Quite the reverse, quite the reverse. And it, it, it comes from, a, like you say, it's that memory thing. And if you're fortunate to be to have access to, to very good, in inverted commas, music, it, it, that's kind of like, like they say, you know, a lot of people could judge someone by their record collection. And I, and I often say that I don't, but I do. If you've got certain artists and you're a fan of certain artists, it definitely helps me understand your point of view on things. You know, it can definitely signpost to who you are as a person. Like, and but like I say, during the 70s and 80s, it's interesting that it was just, it was almost genreless. There was a couple of things going on, you know, punk and what have you. But it was really just like, let's just make the best and most interesting music we could. This will fold back, actually, to what we'll talk about later. Because what, during that time when people were getting signed by record labels, they didn't know, as Pink Floyd have said and Gilmore said, they didn't know what the fuck they were booking. They were just like, this seems interesting. Book them, let's get, get them to do an album. Think about, like, you know, The Doors and the, their first album. That's, that, that would never have been allowed now. That, that kind of experimentation and freedom would have never been allowed. And it was a glorious time for that. And I think, you know... It's difficult to see that returning. I mean, we'll get into that about, you know, labels and, and, and freedom and stuff. But, you know, ELO was, in many ways as well, was creating, it, I don't know, they probably didn't know it or certainly didn't have the, the lexicon to describe it, but they were creating their own brand. You talk about those album covers, that was a unique thing that you saw that and you were like, that's UFO. I don't need to see a logo. That, that's Sorry, ELO. That's ELO. I don't need to see a, a, a logo or anything like that. I know who it is. And that went on to artwork and posters and tours and everything. And it became like a, you, that's how you'd find them. You'd be looking in a, a record shop and that's what you'd look for. Did you, when did you start buying records for yourself then after you, you, you plundered your dad's collection? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I tell you, I started buying tapes. Okay, sure. Yeah. Because, because, yeah, I'm nearly 50 and I'm in that weird zone age wise where vinyl was passing. Yeah. Mm. It, it, it had peaked and was starting to trough a bit and cassettes became the big thing. Mm. And uh, certainly my first purchases, which would have been in the early 80s, you know, 10, 12 years old with pocket money, were, were very much cassette tapes. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and I bought tapes a lot. Then I bought a bit of vinyl um, in the 80s, but that was mainly stuff I couldn't get hold of on tape until, mm. boom, uh, I think 1985-6, my dad bought me a CD player for Christmas. Good Lord. Yeah. yeah. That 
that was like oh my god <laughs> compact discs yeah just listen to the quality of that sound you know no popping on vinyl uh no uh getting the tape stuck in the tape machine you know mm. crystal clear digital sound and then well, that, yeah. was, that was me they celebrate it. I think the CD or at least the announcement of it celebrated an anniversary recently. And they showed that footage. I think it was on Tomorrow's World of the presenter buttering the, the CD and then it's still playing and stuff. And it was people, if you weren't around for that particular moment when CDs became, I think the first, wasn't the first CD like uh, his brothers in arms, wasn't it? Die straight. And, and it was like, it was such a paradigm shift when that happened, when CDs came out. But just before you, you, we, we go into that, there was an interesting thing you talk about how we sh- you shifted from vinyl to tape because vinyl was almost fading away, if you will. There was a time, ladies and gentlemen, when that was the case, and tape was becoming de rigueur. But that was based because uh, the introduction of the Walkman and yeah. and that type of thing, and that became the instead of the medium driving it, it became the the hardware driving it, and it kind of seems to go in circles sometimes with that and. So the Walkman, ladies and gentlemen, for those maybe too young to remember, is like what an iPod was, except you could only get 12 songs on it and it required batteries that needed changing. And it was quite big. And um, and then the shift to CD was, was it seemed to be connected in a similar vein. It seemed to be quality and portability. So, you know, uh, the, the move into CDs was governed by the medium, but also by the hardware as well. And I think we're almost at the, I mean, we'll get into this most definitely. We're at the, the tipping point where that's kind of gone 360 as well. So did do you, do you remember what the first tapes you were buying then? Who was, who was that? Well, I'm going to mention them again. The first cassette, <laughs> the first cassette I bought with my own money was ELO two. Yeah. Um, even though ELO two came out in what, 1971, mm. I bought it on tape in, in probably 1981. Yeah. Um, but then also in the 80s, I veered off into the world of hip hop. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, I I was really lucky, man. I, I grew up in uh, uh, North London where the hip hop scene in the UK was uh, all based around import records. You could buy at Champion Records in Halston. So I was there for all of the really early uh, Grandmaster Flash, um, Cormo D, Schooly D, all that stuff, right the way up until Beastie Boys and Public Enemy. Yeah. in sort of 85 86 i suppose because london um, was very much the, the landing point wasn't it from the stuff that was happening in new york uh and then uh, that would like london was tend, tend to be the, the landing point for that where that most of that stuff would kind of enter the uk if you will that and maybe manchester uh, and through record shops and that type of thing and that's kind of one of the ways to, that it kind of was introduced it i'm right in saying yeah man i mean it, it, it wasn't even London, I mean, there were specific bits of London. I mean, Halston, yeah. where I lived in, in 1985, was the centre of what was happening in hip-hop. And it was all based around Champion Records, yeah, uh, who were in Halston, but also um, uh, a DJ on Capital Radio, whose name's just gone out of my head. Um, he used to play late at night on Fridays and Saturdays. Um, and, you know, t- right place, right time. I was there, you know? Yeah. Um, and... Um, so, and I relate this to your tape thing, you know, in the, in the mid eighties, it was uh, tapes for albums that were, you know, UK sort of major band releases. And then for the hip hop stuff, it was all 12 inch imports. And that yeah, was the thing, yeah. man, if you had, you know, like a Def Jam 1985. Like a white label something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. White label 12 inch import, which you probably paid, you know, 10 quid for, which back in 1985 was a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You were one of the cool kids 
<laughs> is it badge of honor? It did. Yeah. Yeah, man. It didn't matter. It didn't matter what you look like, who you were. It's like, oh, he's got uh, DVD on 12 inch import. Yeah. Because that was, it was interesting, like, because that helped the resurgence. Hip hop helped the resurgence again of vinyl for two reasons. But the first one being that uh, a lot of the, these, these artists would have a box of records that they would take to play their set and they would play it on a set of, of turntables. And that would be how they would do it. And then that's the, the genesis of uh, street parties and house parties and what have you. And then that's emceeing where someone is on the mic talking whilst these records are playing. And then we get to rapping and then we get to scratching as well and, and, and a manipulation of, of, of vinyl. It was it was like trying to get the most out of one particular format, which naturally you, co- you couldn't do with a tape and you could, only, you could only do later on with a CD. So there was that wonderful... Yeah creation why when did the jump to hip-hop how did that get introduced to yourself was it from friends or you took a chance or you heard something on the radio what was the move no, from I, sort I, of that? my pe- my parents moved yeah mm. and you got to remember in 1984-5 i was 13-14 so parents yeah. moved i go with them obviously sure. we moved to we moved to wembley yeah um my back garden overlooked wembley stadium on one side and Harlston on the other wow. and so suddenly i moved into this area where um it was very culturally diverse um i was one of the only white kids on the street i lived in yeah um and just i you you, at that age you just soak up what's around you yeah and Mm. all of my mates were listening to electro as was yeah because that's where obviously electro merged into hip-hop yeah um and i remember again where it all really kicked off for me i sat sitting in a mate's bedroom in halston in what 84 85 and he played roxanne shantae and it was like, whoa, yeah, yeah, this is incredible. Um, and relating that to tapes, yeah, when, what we all then used to do was this uh, DJ whose name I really must remember. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, this DJ, yeah, yeah, you, we all used to record his radio show. But what you do mm. is you'd like press record on your cassette, recording off the radio, pause for the adverts, yeah, pause for the end of the songs. You just end up with these mad mixtapes. I've still got them. Yeah. yeah? Still yeah. got them all over there. Um, and so, you you know, you made these compilation tapes, yeah? Mm. Um, and uh, that was cool as fuck as well, you know? Well, I loved um, it. I loved it. What, what happened with tape, which the record industry didn't like, is that obviously very quickly people learned to pirate music and learned to, you know, like you say, tape off the radio. Like, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you know, if uh, for maybe some of the younger people in our audience, on the radio was sometimes the only way you could hear certain songs. Like like Andrew says, that if you didn't have the record or access to it, you didn't hear that song. It was as simple as that. There was no internet. So you would have to listen to the radio, and you were basically, the, these DJs were gatekeepers. So they would be like, okay, I've got these records, or I've heard these records, and I'm going to present them. So like the, the likes of John Peel and Tommy Vance and stuff like that were gatekeepers for me of hearing entirely new artists and these shows were followed fervently um, and like Andrew says you would you would record them and then you would take those songs and you would go okay well I like this song I like this song I like whatever song you would compile them and it was the the birth of the mixtape where you would go okay I'll lend it here's here's some song I heard and you'd lend it to your friend that'd be the best of this or the best of whatever and it was a glorious time it was like you know the, the, it was the birth of of tape trading and the record companies obviously hated that because they weren't making any any money of it but it was like that and you know you think of the metal end of that you look like you know metal blade and stuff like that uh, that was kind of the, the beginnings of those tape trading things and you know the quality was was terrible but 
you know, for the most part of these things, we want, but you were so, what's the best way to say it? You were, you were so absolutely, the need to hear music and new music was so powerful. You forgo the fact that 20 seconds before the end of the song, someone's voice cuts in at the radio that you didn't quite catch when you were recording it. And to, you know, to grow up with him, that, that must have been fabulous, you know, that close to Wembley yeah. to see yeah, like, no, the, the totally. larger acts and then see the grassroots move from, from hip hop must have been absolutely fabulous. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, a couple of other things on just on, on the taping, which was cool, right? So we all had like tape to tape machines as well. Mm. So, you know, you'd record off the radio and then um, you could use your, the faders that you had on the cassette deck. I mean, God, yeah. how faders you know, <laughs> made, made these awesome tapes, yeah? Mm. And then you'd do your own art as well and cut it all out and put yes, them in. Yeah. Uh, and also you became a tape snob, yeah? Because if you were cool, man, you had TDK cassettes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and true, if you yeah. had the TDK Chrome cassettes, man, you were like, oh, TDK Chrome. You know too too broad uh, yeah. for me, too much for me. <laughs> yeah, man, you know, or, or if you were like just the coolest of all, then you had Maxell, you know. Oh, yes. Wow. He's handing out this compilation on the Maxell crazy <laughs> You know, so no, that was cool. And all, but also, I've got to tell you, because uh, I often get asked, right, so how do you get to metal? Yeah. Mm. Hip hop led me to metal. Sure. Because my, that DJ on Capital Radio, I remember his name, Mike Allen. I remember, Mike, Mike Allen. I remember, I remember it's clear as day, Mike Allen saying, We've got this hot new band for you now. They're called the Beastie Boys. Mm. Yeah. And he played Rhyming and Stealing, which is the first track on License to Will. Yeah? Yeah. With that, with the um, the huge bottom when the levee dra- uh, breaks. Yeah. Um, and the uh, the Sabbath riff, although it's not played, it's not a sample, it's actually played. Yeah. And for the first time, I heard that combination of beats. Mm proper drums and a massive riff and by the end of that song i was like fuck me <laughs> i need this, to hear more of that this, this is a game changer yeah. and i went out and i bought license to ill on mm. import tape yeah oh, yeah uh, and for me it was all about the songs with the killer guitars mm. and that that's where that and run dmc's walk yeah. away that's how that's recently how um recently uh, dmx passed away and i talked about how um I, I got one of my friends into metal when I was much younger. I got one of my friends, into, and I used the, the usual entry points that you would do. But he got me into hip hop, and he one of the, one of the artists amongst like uh, the the RZA and and people like that was DMX. And one of the things that I gravitated to is exactly what you talk about: is the there's, there's very similar energies going on in in, in aggressive and, and a hard hip hop with metal there's very similar things emphasis on drum beats emphasis on on heavy and melodic lines and riffs and they they those two were, were, were born to be put together i you know it was it was only a matter of time before you know most people see the likes of aerosmith and 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 that's their entry point for, for metal and hip-hop or rock in that case mixing together but the seeds were were far you know, far, far flung and, and started in many different places. And those energies are very similar. And yeah, mm-hmm. so to, to, most people would see that as being a strange thing to jump from hip hop to metal. To me, it makes complete sense. Uh, you know, and it was, and it was a lot of, like you say, a lot, a lot of metal bands look at hip hop, look at certainly look at the drums in hip hop and, and that type of thing. And hip hop looks at metal. They, they, they totally do. There's a wonderful scene. Uh, off of one of the documentaries and it's uh, Dr. Dre and he's listening to Nirvana 
And and it's and he, the reason he is is because it's the, it was the same energy he had, that rawness and that kind of uh, sound that was recorded in a room next door to you yesterday. Uh, yeah. You know, so that must have been that must have been pretty mind blowing. Did it did would, did that become something of a rabbit hole that you you fell down then? Did you went down the Beastie Boys route and stuff? Did you? I imagine Slayer yeah. Slayer may have come into that because then I'm thinking around the 80s. Then I'm thinking there's there's a prominence of that. Did, what yeah, what was totally. the, the more metal sort of edges that you lent to them? Well, I mean, just I suppose finishing off that story, you got to remember that when within a very short space of time there was Walk This Way, uh, Run DMC and Aerosmith. Um, there was uh, Beastie Boys. Um, there was also Anthrax and Public Enemy doing Bring the Noise. Yeah. Um, and those three tracks just tipped me over into metal completely. But um, I was always a bit of a label geek. Yeah. Oh, right. What label's that on? Sure. You know? And Beastie Boys um, or um, sorry, who produced Beastie Boys? And, you know, then I got onto Rick Rubin and then Rick Rubin. Oh, he's got his own label, Def Jam. Let's really pile into Def Jam. And of course, Def Jam was a hip hop label, uh, and then he signed Slayer, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought might might be one uh, of your, your connection points. Yeah, 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 man. So, so obviously, first time I heard Slayer was like fucking hell. This is like <laughs> the energy of hip hop, but like times fifty. Mm. Um, and I stuck with. Uh, I was obsessed with Rick Rubin and Def Jam and Def American up until it became really quite commercial. But like mm. Rick Rubin had a golden patch where he had. Yes. Slayer, but he had the, he had the Four Horsemen, he had Danzig, um, you know. He I've just had it, yeah. This wonderful this, period, yeah. Yeah, man. There's this famous compilation uh, called "From Death Till Death Till Us Do Part," I think it's called. Black Crows first was on there as well. Um, you know, back then, Rick Rubin was the man. Yeah, mm. um, and it that was, rubbed off on of me. A lot of a lot of the. Um, like you say, your label snob. Well, I was the same way. There was there was uh, one of the routes I took because I was a guitar player was like shrapnel uh, and things like that. Uh, you know, and, and we talk about metal blade and things like that. And what it, the reason it was, it, it we joke saying snobs, but what it was was that it was this seal of quality because sometimes you had to take a chance on a record because your know, money was tight and it was you know, I think these things were expensive. You had to. They had to earn your trust first with a, a couple of records. You're like, these guys know what I like. I like what they like. We're of the same thinking. And it became a way of uh, taking a chance without taking a chance. Oh, okay, who's next out on this particular label? And back then, you know, certain producers were, were like Rick Rubin just had this magic touch and this seal where they were, whoever they worked with, you, you knew that there was something about them that you would enjoy. Rick Rubin felt like me. Uh, like, I was like, okay, totally. There's a wonderful documentary about Rick Rubin, and he he, he talks about just simply enjoying music and, and being completely genderless, uh, genderless again. And and it became a real – that's how I went to the record store. I would go to the record store, and there would be an actual section. Uh, it would be sectioned off non-alphabetically. It would be sectioned by the uh, by who produced them or uh, or the label. And that was when labels were absolutely huge. And we're seeing, and we'll definitely get into this, we're seeing a resurgence of that now where there are some independent labels that are, are real great seals of quality. You know, off the top of my head, Basic, for example, would be someone I know that my, most of their releases I'm going to enjoy. Um, so I'm interested, when, when, when did this kind of go to being watching bands live as well? When did that sort of take place, the shift to going to see a live band? Yeah, well, that was a little bit later because... Um... Uh, my parents were quite strict at the yeah. time. Uh, they're not anymore, <laughs> but they were. <laughs> and uh, so 
so I didn't really get out to gigs until I was sort of 15, 16. Yeah. Mm. Um, but, um, which is a really good point to mention my beloved Rush, isn't it really? Because, <laughs> I was, we I were think, wondering I think, when we were get to Rush. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that there have been three sort of, you know, real, real milestones musically. ELO was one in terms of getting me into music. Mm. Hip hop was second because it led me to metal. But then Rush. Yeah. And one, I mean, my first proper gig was Peter Gabriel. But then my second was seeing Rush at Wembley Arena in 1987. Wow. And that two-hour experience changed mm. my life. Yeah. I cannot tell you how fucking immense Rush were to see live mm. in in '87, um, and uh, yeah, Wembley Arena. I was what 15 years old, and I was floored. Yeah, because yeah. it's uh, for, for 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 a young Andrew that must have seemed like quite a few worlds coming nice and neatly together. Progressiveness. Yeah. And heaviness and 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 you know and, and entertainment and a spectacle that must have seemed like everything hit the nail on the head then at that point it was like okay this is this is the whole package this is everything now yeah and and uh and that seeing rush in 87 definitely made me then want to repeat that experience mm. uh with other bands so yeah sure. that's when i got that's when i got hooked hooked on that definitely did you go with, I mean, obviously that would have been a huge show. Did you go to like local shows, like at smaller venues and that type of thing? Yeah, man. Um, I mean, I, living in North London, I was really lucky because obviously London, more mm. venues than anywhere else in the country. Yeah. So certainly as my, as my teens, my, uh, in my late teens, I was always up in the centre of London at the Marquee, uh, the Astoria, the Town and Country Club, wow. Hammersmith Odeon as was, you know um Hulls de Mean Fiddler very local to where I lived um so yeah um and certainly in, in the late 80s um I was going to two gigs a week minimum mm. yeah um I was uh, trying to explain to a, a, to a to an American friend of mine how I, I just how like London centric uh, certainly at that time things were how many bands were just passing through and in the touring business they call it the uh the BLS the big London show because it's still considered it's still it's still important even in the birth of of online it's still an important place that you must play and like you say you know you could go to two three four maybe a gig a night um uh, at that time and see a great band of their story or whatever it may may be and the only closest they could way i could explain it was just like kind of like las vegas because there's always some everybody wants to play there and there's constantly bands playing the best show they, they can london was very much a really a cool and it was everything everything was coming through there there's somewhere like the Astoria was, was none of these venues were a particular genre specific they would have everybody through you could see in excess one night uh, and a whole load of metal bands the next like it was completely uh, it was completely open it was a glorious time and then I, I suppose one of the questions that, that, that comes up when we talk about this is did you at this point think about picking up a musical instrument then <laughs> yeah well <laughs> I, I was already playing a musical instrument. Right. I, I um, well, so, as a kid, I was forced to learn piano, but I gave that up. But um, <laughs> when I was at school, yeah, um, I, I started playing drums, and it was simply as um, as easy as walking past the music department, seeing a drum kit, and the teacher saying, "If you want to have a go on that, have a go." <laughs> That's it. Yeah? yeah, and that was it. Yeah, and so I became a really great shit drummer. <laughs> Yeah. Sure. So what I mean by that is I was in two bands when I was in my school early, t- my, my late teens, 
yet. Yeah. Um, and at the time, I thought we were just fucking. <laughs> Why would you? Um, one band was called. Are you ready for this? Go on, I love first Ru- ones. Rack. Rack and Ruin. It's, 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 the, it's the and. It's just the, an and. So it's Rack yeah. and Ruin. Like rack and Ruin. Amazing. But then after, after a year, we decided that that wasn't great. So we changed it to the even worse Toxic Truth. Toxic Truth. Oh, That's yeah. fabulous. So um, that band, that band, we uh, we wanted to be Guns N' Roses really badly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we're shit. Uh, but then after that, I, jo- I joined this other band um, and with the even worse name of, are you ready for this? Go on. Pe- Peanut Butter Spliff. That's, that might, do you know what? I, I often feign surprise when I hear b- crazy band names, but that might be the worst one I've heard so far on yeah, this show. Peanut Butter Spliff, yeah. <laughs> and um, we wanted to be Living Colour, yeah? Oh, okay, sure, yeah. Uh, because, you know, in the in the late 80s, early 90s, Living Colour were huge. We wanted to be Living yeah. Colour real bad, yeah? Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, we, my mate Toby had this real soulful black voice, yeah, and a guitarist. Sorry, the, the bass player thought Doug Wimbush's bass, tong, 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 all that. Yeah, he's all slapping to it, yeah. And again, I thought we were incredible, but we were shit. Yeah. <laughs> did, um, you play any, did you play any shows or did it, did yeah, it ever? Man, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, the first band, uh, the Rack and Ruin Toxic Truth Band, we were that band that used to rock up at the windmill in... Um, <laughs> in Brixton where um, Ben, the bass player's dad, had driven us down, yeah, and we would play to Ben's dad and whoever happened to be at the bar, yeah. But the yeah. other band, Peanut Butter Spliff, we actually, we became um, quite popular, not because we're any good, yeah, because, <laughs> because, oh, my God, those lads are in a band, we're going to go and yeah. see them play live, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we had lots of people, we had lots of people. Uh, I think our biggest show, we paid to like three, 400 people wow. who came to watch us because we were shit, but we were their mates, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, that was, so, I mean, the, back, back then it was still, it was still quite a mission to get a band together, you know, because this is pre-internet, ladies and gentlemen, you know, this is pre kind of being able to sort times to meet up and jam and stuff. Everything was really organic. So, you know, there wasn't every, the world and his wife's in a band now, you know, and if you're a drummer now, you're in about 17 bands. Uh, but back then it was still, there was still a wonderfulness about it. You know, there was still, mm, a, did you, yeah. did you kind of, when you went on stage, did you, I, I don't, how do I put this? I've asked this of a few people who play musical instruments and then see the live show. Did that somehow enhance going to see live bands yourself? Now, that once, you, once you were the drummer and you kind of seen that whole world and, but then you go to see someone who's very good. If you if you're like me, not very good, you go to see someone who is good. Did that enhance that experience being playing the drums yourself? What I mean by that ultimately, I suppose, is did you f- like lean towards drummers then uh, and and drum heavy music? Um, well, my love, uh, I took up the drums because I loved drummers. Yeah, right. So um, the reason that I started playing the drums was because of Neil Peart and Rush. Simple as. Yeah. 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 Um, and what I discovered really quickly was whilst I am, I'm just immense as an air drummer, mate, my air drumming game is strong. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and I can play, I can play the whole of Rush's YYZ and La Villa Strangiato back-to-back air drumming. No problem. No mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> behind the kit and it's slightly different. That yeah. Isn't quite so actually, for me, it was in reverse. You know, I'd seen great drummers. Yeah. And then I wanted to have a go at it. Sure. Um, but the reality is, is that, um, you know, <clears throat> I was Ringo Starr level of drumming rather than uh, <laughs> Neil Neil's drum. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, 
But I wanted to be in a band quite simply uh, to either be Neil Peart or get laid. Yeah? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's and, yeah. And certainly in that second band, yeah. Um, you know, you got to remember, I, mean, I was a teenage boy, had raging hormones, and uh, hmm. being in a band was really useful for that kind of. Thing, yeah. You know, isn't it? Isn't it strange that that that's now almost seen as a bad thing to say about why you're in a band? You must like now if, if you're in a band, you have to have some kind of crazy manifesto about what you believe in and what it stands for. And and in reality, a lot of great bands were formed purely to meet girls. You know, it, yeah, it, also, it just I, was. Yeah, but I think it's really important to say as well. I mean, even back then, it was it was no it was not like oh you know I'm going to play drums in a band so that I can be a bad boy and get laid. Yeah, yeah. we all wanted girlfriends. Yeah, yeah. And everyone in my band was as ungood looking as I. <laughs> Seriously, back then we were all geeky, quite ugly boys, yeah. And we latched on very quickly that if we could actually reasonably play our instruments, don't even have to be good, yeah. yeah. Reasonable instruments, then we would get really nice girlfriends, yeah. yeah. And so, certainly, you know, I, I, had, I had a couple of girlfriends when I was in the band, um, and people would say, "Why on earth is someone that good looking with him?" Yeah. And my mate would say, "We plays drums." Plays drums. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> Because it adds points to you, of course it does. Of course it does. It, 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 it was innocent, you know. Yeah, and, and it's lovely. It's lovely that some of the bands that exist, you know, some of the classic bands exist because they started from that. That was it was just a group of friends getting together because it was just used to either get drunk, take drugs, meet girls. It was just that's where it started from, you know. Sabbath, yeah. Sabbath didn't form for you know, to to with the thought process of what they became. It was just, you know, they just got together, just aligned. And I'm sure that, you know, the drugs and the girls were as much a part of it as listening to music and playing music was. And it's just weird that we've lost a little bit of that now where some people are almost un- afraid to say that. You know, I'm in a band because I want to be, I want to have fun. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, what, you you haven't got this big plan about how you want to brand your band and the, your, your five-year plan on what you want to do. No, I just, and I find that all the great stuff tends to to come from that. Um, you know, I, I remember discovering Rush myself, and uh, and and just being blown away. It, f- it felt complicated to me, but not complicated that I didn't want to learn. It felt complicated. I needed to listen more. That's what I felt yeah. when I when I, when I, I, I had to. Okay, hold on, stop and and take this in because there's a lot going on, and and it must be good. It sounds great. Why is it so good? And I remember deconstructing. Everything you know, moving pictures now. All these great fly by night was it was a big album for me, and and trying to deconstruct them and, and and listen to them, and and it would that it was that kind of that's how you find a connection with a band. I think is that ultimately oh, you have to spend some time with them to break the yeah. code, if you will. I think so. Also, with me, Russia appealed because they were an outsiders band, and I was an outsider. You know, I was this geeky, awkward boy. Uh, when I wasn't in bands, you know, um, I was your absolute cliched, black-wearing, weirdo teenager, yeah? And Rush, people um, forget that in the 80s, Rush were not cool, yeah? The mm-hmm. media hated them. They were ignored by the press. You'd struggle to... They were weird because you'd struggle to find anybody that liked Rush. You'd say, oh, do you like Rush? No, fuck them, fucking weirdos, time signatures, bleh, kimonos, mm-hmm. bollocks. But <laughs> then they'd come over to the UK and play three nights at Wembley Arena. Yeah. 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 So just this weird dichotomy between no one I knew, ever yeah. met knew who they were, but then I'd go and worship with 8,000 other like minds at Wembley Arena. Yeah, it was it was interesting that, that you like virtually no radio play, you know, uh, you didn't see, it wasn't like they were getting advertised left, right, and center, you would, but somehow you'd, yeah, you'd go to these large shows 
arena shows and to be full and and to be people with. I remember seeing some of my first back uh, patches at, at Rush shows of, of albums I hadn't even heard by them yet. And there was someone who'd have lots of different artwork by them. And I thought, where, where are these people and how are they finding this music? You know, uh, and that's like about the same time when I started discovered uh, rock DJs. I talk about Tommy Vance quite a lot because he was oh, a gatekeeper. God. Just what a yeah. voice. And for his show, yeah. he would yeah. he would play Gary Moore and stuff yeah. and, and, and people I hadn't even heard of. And then yeah. so quite often, more often than not, they would have band nights. So that guy who was the DJ would have a night at, at, at the uh, Planet X or, or the Crazy House or whatever. These DJs would play there and play these almost forbidden tunes, if you will, which sounds insane when I say it like that. To someone listening, it's like it was, you, you, the only way you could hear these things was going to a club and listening to them. Totally. And I think also a lot of a lot of people forget as well. You know, like nowadays, if you're in a rock nightclub and they play a new track, the dance floor clears, that's yep. it, game over, yep. DJ's yep. dead. Yep. Whereas in London in the late 80s, I used to go to the, uh, there was a cl- uh, rock club at the uh, Astoria called The Web on hmm. Friday nights, The Web. The Web <laughs> Metal Night, yeah? And everyone, everyone would be on the floor for all the classics, but then suddenly the DJ goes, right, I'm going to play a new tune now. This is this new band, Galactic Cowboys. This is called Space in Your Face. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody would just be on the middle of the floor fucking throwing their heads around because it was yeah. a cool track. Yeah. And that, that doesn't happen now. By yeah. the way, don't we sound like a pair of old fucks telling our war stories? About- <laughs> Yours are much <laughs> cooler than mine, but it's, I think it's because it's... The reason it's interesting is that it, it provides two things. It provides context to realise why it was so important to you the, 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 the records existed and these things existed because now it seems so easy to, to get hold of this thing and digest this thing. But oh, also, totally. there's a wonderful 360 here where, you know, we, and it sounds about the right time to get into it, where vinyl has its resurgence and, and these things have a resurgence and the, the want to find stuff that people haven't heard before and the want to find instead. You know, a radio station now is 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 changed now from a playlist, and, and someone will go, okay, I like this person because their playlist is very good, and that's a version of a mixtape mixed with a DJ, and and it, and yes, we, I you know I I I'm a, I sound like we sound like old guys, you know, shouting at, at clouds, but you know, in reality, it just illustrates that how cyclic the the music industry has been, and uh, you know, and for, for for good or bad, and so. Yeah, I suppose now it, we it, we could probably introduce. Did you start collecting vinyl at some point? You went through tape, you went through CD. Did you go back then and start getting into vinyl again? Because I'm thinking no, metal no. would have led to that, or Rush would have led to that, or were you still within the CD phase? No, still CDs. Okay. Uh, I mean, uh, where I where I sit now in 2021 is that I still have uh, a vast CD collection. Um, my vinyl, uh, I mean, like a lot of people my age, I sold sold all my vinyl. Mm. in the 90s because it's yeah. like vinyl's dead fuck that it's gone yeah yeah, yeah. what a mistake that was completely um, <laughs> you know so but also uh yes you talk about things being cyclical i've really got back into tapes recently i mm. still have my walkman right yeah sure. still have my walkman and the thing <laughs> is, is my walkman is now plugged into my lovely denon system yeah? <laughs> and so i can yeah. listen to my tapes um, yeah so I remember the, the the day I saw a band release because it's been a bit of time before tapes had kind of fell out of favour, and a band had released their album on tape, and it blew my mind. It was the first time I'd seen that, and it was a proper yeah. you know made made tape, and I was like, this is fantastic. And now it's become a, a a very cool thing to do. It's it's completely gone round full circle, and now it's a cool thing. But what Andrew talks about, where 
people were getting rid of their vinyl. That seems sacrilegious now. It seems sacrilegious. But at the time, when CDs came out, it was all about the quality. A lot of people talk about now, you know, when they drop a needle and they want to hear those, those little sort of sounds and the, the hairs and the noise and all that type of thing. We were, during the like 80s into the 90s, were, were, were on a mission to, to get clean that up. We wanted the cleanest sound. It was all about, you know, the clarity of things. And so vinyl seemed like, okay, that's done. It was like, well, there hasn't been a resurgence in a track. And, and that's probably the reason why is that, you know, we thought vinyl would, would never be seen again. Mm. Uh, tape would come along and CD had come along again. And I wonder when that happened, when it started to, to be like, people go, okay, I, I kind of prefer vinyl still. And, and it became the, the more sort of the rigueur way of listening. Because what for me, I think it's for me, it started when um, Steve Viralee's Passion of Warfare, like 1990 and 1991, and the CD ha- couldn't fit the artwork on. And so they had to turn it on its side and it ruined the whole thing for me. And although it was very beautifully put together, I remember thinking, this is a clash here. I, he wanted me to listen to this on vinyl, not listen to it on CD. And then you know, I, I remember digging out albums that I still had, uh, albums like Hot Rats by, by Zappa. And I remember thinking, this wasn't designed for CD. You know, they would do, the person who created this didn't intend that to be that way. When do you, I don't know, when do you think that happened? When it, when, it, when it kind of started, the pendulum starts to shift back to vinyl? Wow, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Uh. I, I'm, I'm throwing it out there because I genuinely have no idea. I could no, say... I mean, 90s early 90s i don't know the vinyl level i mean vinyl never went away because uh, mm. i mean god if i think back to you know my sub pop era because um i was yeah. obsessed with obsessed with sub pop uh, right the way up until nirvana break big um i resented that uh, but that's another story but you know <laughs> sub pop sub pop in the late 80s you know the first sound garden um um uh, mud honey the early nirvana stuff tab things like that you know we used to get seven inch singles of that kind of stuff um and that rough raw ready kind of thing worked on tape and vinyl but didn't work on cd you know mm. and it became a way of supporting those those yeah. uh, so, you so, know those artists yeah. and those particular so labels so i don't think vinyl ever went away but you know fast forwarding when i when i set up abf in 2017 we were still selling way more cds than vinyl mm. and then overnight 2018 2019 that totally changed mm. uh and really took me by surprise yeah i think it took a lot of people um, by surprise yeah. yeah but i think where we are now i don't know what you think right cd is dying a death i still sell loads of them to people of my age yeah yeah of which, and there are i ain't gonna hide from the fact that some of my most loyal apf followers of my age bless them yeah yeah um but the cd will come back yeah, yeah it's gonna I, die it's gonna yeah. die and then much in the way, same way that vinyl has and tape has, one day CD will come back. And it will be that, it'll start with hipster collecting, which is how the vinyl resurgence came back and how the tape resurgence is coming back. And then it'll be the same as CD, I know it will. It, it, it sometimes becomes um, function and form, doesn't it? It becomes like, because largely vinyl was kept alive, like you say, by hipster collectors and type of thing, but also by the, the DJs uh, and that type of thing. And it was kept, it kept you know, certainly... Uh, you know, sort of dance and stuff like that kept that kind of uh, on life support long enough before the resurgent happened. But a lot of it's designed by the form. So, like, for example, you know, there's a, there's an element of, uh, you know, retro thought process. People like retro things now and, and as it goes into retro, like, like you say, tapes and, 
CDs will now be seen as retro. And that's a cool yeah, way of, of collecting. Yeah, nostalgic uh, element to it. But also, there's this wonderful thing where a, a, an artist learns to manipulate the medium. So I'll give you an example. So um, back, Nirvana's a good example like uh, of, that, of hidden tracks and things like that on albums. And they learned to, you know, uh, when Metallica did like Load, for example, on CD, and it used up every single inch of the CD. There was no more space or that they could put music on. And and then things like Corn put like the um, the lead in to to their album was like a countdown on the because they knew that that's what people would look at and it becomes this wonderful of how could we take that and subvert it to 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 highlight our sort of thing. I remember when Pink Floyd released uh, a Pulse and it was a, a CD and obviously Pink Floyd widely known for their artwork and the quality that yeah and it had a light for those that maybe aren't aware Google it. There's a light, like just a red light, a red dot that just blinked on and off like a pulse. And I remember reading in the linear notes, um, Water saying, you know, uh, uh, if you don't like the music and you use this as a, a, put it in your car and pretend it's an alarm. And, <laughs> and it was, the, and I like that, that every sort of medium and, and, and sort, of, uh, sort of way of playing a particular music can be used. You've just got to find the level that works, you know, because now to produce, to produce a record, uh, to step back slightly, to produce a record back then cost a lot of money for a band to actually produce a record was was initially very very difficult. It was a, it was another of many gates to be in a band. If you were good enough, you, you had to go the next step to be good enough and uh, have enough money to release a record. And it became a huge badge of honor to have your 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 name and your picture and your logo on on a piece of vinyl. And now it's it seems like a lot of you know certainly you know, hardcore doom bands and things like that and sludge bands will actively seek out these weird mediums and make like a sort of wonderful tape SSS did it, a wonderful tape and it was beautiful and it looked very much at the time, but it was just another example of them and, and bands like that going, okay, they all mediums are viable. We just have to figure out how it works for us, you know? Yeah. I'm just about to, well, just um, doing the most <laughs> ridiculous thing. And we're, the video nasties on APS. We've just uh, repressed their Dominion album, and people who buy it get a free flexi disc of the new video nasties yeah. single. I know, yeah. right? Which is like <laughs> so. For oh those, for once again, I keep saying this, but for the, the younger audience out there, ladies and gentlemen, a flexi disc is a piece of vinyl, except it's normally placed on the front of a, a magazine, be it whatever, whatever it is, and it's normally very brightly coloured. And it's just, it's normally a single, uh, and it comes sometimes be a split. And you literally, it was taped to the front of a magazine. You think what happens to a magazine when it travels on its journey. And you would take that home and nine times out of ten, it'd be crackly as hell. But there's some of the most, Rollins talks about this being, that those are some of the most collectible things in the world because they were seen as being disposable. People would read the magazine and listen to the record and then throw both away. Uh, but these were these these were placed on the front of, of, of things, as well as tapes and CDs. They were all placed on the front of magazines. Uh, which is still something that goes on, like you know, something like guitar, guitarist and, and and guitar techniques magazines. They they'll put the CD on front. It's a convenience thing, I guess. But yeah, flexi discs, fantastic. Yeah, man. Yeah, so that's great fun. So that's just another format I can tick tick off of my format releasing list. You know, <laughs> I love it. But that's like you know, uh, it's like uh, one of the first experiences I had of that kind of coming back again, where a, a small label was making something interesting and it was a way of me supporting that sort of small label and supporting those bands. It was like Discord. 
uh, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, you know, when I was like, okay, this isn't a big label, and I have to support this because otherwise, I, you, they're not going to survive. And that was put on Front Street by them. They were like, please buy our record, and uh, and I think that that was the start of well, that was the start of independence, basically, for for one of a better way of, of seeing it. When did the, the the start in the thought process at least become? with yourself to do a APF records, where did the Genesis start? I know when you actually started it, but when did the thought process to start it start? Yeah. So if we fast forward all the stuff from when I worked for a record label many years ago and just get up to, we should do that. Andrew, we should, people will want to know that. Let's Uh, Well, that, you know what? That's, that story has been told. (laughs) We'll tell that. (laughs) <laughs> Let's just say that there are other places you can hear the adamant story. Let's just sure. leave it at that. No, <laughs> um, when the, the the moment that I started, sorry, just the moment that I decided that I was going to start a record label was in 2016 when I was pissed out of my face in a beer garden in Manchester with a band yeah, who said, um, we've recorded this new album, but we uh, haven't got any money to release it. Yeah, we just want to put it out on CD and bank camp and that's it. And I said, well, I could do that. I've got a bit of money. Uh, and that was the genesis. Yeah. That's when it started. Uh, yeah. and, and from that moment, um, it grew. Um, and of course, you think to yourself, well, it can't be that difficult. Yeah, I've worked for a record company when I was 21. <laughs> and then suddenly it's like, right, okay, this isn't straightforward. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's easy to get CDs manufactured, but everything else that comes with releasing music i, I knew fuck all about in hindsight um so kind of learning curve really quickly yeah, man, yeah. Really quickly I, I remember the first the first sort of window i had into someone forming a label and, and, a, and a record company whatever it was um because it was documented by him at the time was like steve Vai when he did um light without heat and joe satriani when um when they did uh, strange beautiful and it was and the the introduce because I thought like yourself, well, how hard could it be, you know? And then you got a window into the 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 whole process is is massive. It, it, there's so many facets to it; it's unbelievable. And and like it, it opened up a whole world that I never knew existed when I started to learn about this about record contracts as well and favored nations and all this kind of weirdness that it opened up that came with it. What was the you know what was the what was that first band, by the way? Well, I mean, the first band that I uh, signed was Under. It was Under, yeah, yeah. yeah that was, uh, um, yeah, the, the, first, the first one. I was, I was just looking through trying to yeah. see but, kind I mean, of the list that, of them. Here you go. Here's an exclusive for you because nobody, <laughs> I've never told, I've never told this story publicly. Sure. But Widows were meant to be my first signing. Ah. Yeah. Um, and uh, this was when they were re- going to be releasing the Oh Dear God album, which is a bit of a fucking classic, if you've not heard it. But they were going to be releasing that album, and uh, we got right the way to the point where we were going to do the deal, and um, and then they turned around and said, actually, Phil, I think we're going to release it ourselves. Um, do you want to lend us the money instead? <laughs> so Widows, Oh Dear God, um, I funded that release. And they won't mind me saying it because it's absolutely true. But that was meant to be APF 001. That was meant to be the first. It was meant release. to be the debut. Um, yeah, but um, Under, but I mean, God, fuck, I love Under. I can't talk enough about Under. Yeah, they are the most bizarre band. Yeah, that you cannot define that band. You just have to listen to them. It's mm. and and they sound like no one else on earth. Um, they are 
far from being my biggest seller and they know that I'm not being disrespectful, but they are a band that could just keep coming up with such amazing music and that I just want to keep releasing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, and that's how it should be. It's, you know, the first thought should be, because it's, it's a very, it's a difficult process and it's a very long winded process. You have to love the band that you're representing that you have to, because it's going to yeah. be such a long process. Um, and they're going to like, look, you, you, you know, we talked about Rick Rubin. We talk about these people that influenced you. There will be a group of people now who will go, well, you know, what, what's Andrew thinking? What's he releasing next? You have become one of those sorts of people that people will go, okay, you know, what's next on, on this label? Because now I'm invested and I like all their output. Um, that must be, that must be an interesting feeling. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, that people see you now as the people you saw influencing yourself. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's really bizarre. I mean, there there is a a group of um, people who will buy pretty much anything that APF releases based mm. on their perception that if it's on APF, then it must be good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now, there's a double-edged sword there because on the one hand, that's fantastic, and I'm so grateful to those people because they they are the bedrock of what has built this label up to where it is now. Yeah. It's wonderful. And I'm really grateful to them, but also it does mean that sometimes I end up listening to submissions from new bands and thinking not do I like this, but will the audience hardcore like like that? And in the end, in the end, I just have to think to myself, no, if I like it, that's good enough. I hope Mm. they like it, but I have to like it. And certainly that's going to be tested soon. Right. Because um, I've signed a band that we haven't announced yet. The album will be coming out in the autumn, and they are totally different from anything I've released before. They are heavy as fuck, yeah? <laughs> but they are very different from the usual APF bag. And I've signed them on the basis that I have to get goosebumps when I hear a band's submission. It doesn't happen often. This album, I listened to it start, which blew my face off. Played it to my business partner, Martin. Blew his face off. And we were like, yeah, we're fucking releasing that. And then once we signed the band, we were like, bloody hell, I hope everyone else likes it. What, what uh, ladies and gentlemen, what, what Andrew is, is describing there um, very eloquently is what, 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 what is sometimes a little bit lacking in the, in the music industry is integrity. He Ooh. is willing to back the thing that he likes um, and you, uh, your open-mindedness to accept what he thinks uh, you will enjoy. And that, that is a rare thing, ladies and gentlemen. It is a rare thing that is now, you know, uh, the, the labels now will think what will sell, what is popular, uh, will we'll tell the bands to record albums. You know, we, we all know stories of, of uh, you know, uh, bands being told to record against the, the genre almost and, and follow trends and stuff like that. And that's just forced by labels. This, is, this thing's pushed on. And we all know about, you know, it goes all the way back to Kiss playing disco, uh, you know, and it goes all the way back to that. And... That's why it's earned, you know, the, 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 that type that type of trust is that every so often there requires a slight leap of faith uh, because that's how you move to the next level. And that's how, more importantly, you introduce new music into, into someone's world, you know, because it's great that you can stay within. We all have our favourites. We all have the things that we like. But every so often, in order to live in colour is an interesting example. I, I didn't think I'd like it. Uh, and I was introduced by a friend. I was like, "This is fantastic." I, I I understand all the the, the references. I understand where where the music's come from and the funk element that that blew my mind at the time. 
we have to take those little steps outside of the st- circle to make sure the circle keeps growing, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Although I've got to be honest with you, I wish that I had some great plan, you know, of like, <laughs> I'm just going to sign bands that are like really amazing and just. That's a plan. That's, that's yeah. a great plan. But if that's all that is. But that would, uh, that plan would need me to take into account the music loves of other people. My mm. signing criteria all the way through APF all over the last four years have simply been, does it blow my face off? Does yeah. it give me goosebumps? Yeah. yeah. Um, and over the last four years, there have been some albums where people have really fucking agreed with me. You know, Video Nasties, Mastiff, mm. two whopping sellers, Possessor. Yeah. But then there have been um, other bands where they've not agreed with me so much mm. because the albums haven't sold as well and haven't been streamed as much. But, you know, that's cool. I genuinely mean this, yeah? I would rather release good music that blows my face off and doesn't spell hundreds of thousands of copies yeah. than, than give in and release something because I'm sat there thinking, oh, this will sell 10,000. Yeah, well, that's yeah. The, the, the end sort of game often decides how the start of the game begins. And so if your end game is to purely make money, it infects the whole process right the way yeah, through man. to the bands that you you have existing to all the bands you take on. And, you know, if you start pissing in that water, if you start affecting that, the end process gets gets massively affected then. And so, you know, it's it, it must be, you know, that's why that's why I cannot, and I cannot speak about this enough, that's why independent labels are so important. Because, ladies and gentlemen, we are, we are being fed stuff sometimes. Um, and sometimes, you know, often the argument is, Everything sounds the same. And if you don't support independent labels like Andrews, that, that that's what will happen because they'll play it safe. They'll they'll stick to what sells and it'll just go to the lowest common denominator. You'll never get anything spectacular. I, I was on a, a, a podcast a couple of days ago and we talked about um, Bohemian Rhapsody and how that became a big song. And obviously that's a whole show in itself. Um, but... One of the reasons it became so big was because Kenny Everett, at then time um, DJ, would play it sometimes twice in a row. And this is a, a, a difficult record because it's not any genre. There's elements of opera. There's elements of metal. There's elements of all kinds of things in there. But the people that had listened to Kenny Everett, who was a comedian come DJ, were, were like, you know what? It, it, this must be, we've got to give it its chance. Sure enough. It breaks through, and now it becomes it's seen as mainstream. It wasn't at the time. It was very the label hated it. The label didn't want it or anything like that. And it, it took it took that to make it, uh, and that it kind of break through. And that breakthroughs can't happen with the larger scale music things because, um, and let me just let me just attend to my light. I feel as though my light has gone out. So let me just attend to that and uh, <laughs> fix this. There we go. That should be a bit better. There we go. Um, yeah, it, it, the problem being is that because because it's being played safe um, and no chances are being taken, no genuine inventions and no genuine trends uh, are, are being created. Nothing's being it, – it's all played safe. So it becomes like a, a money game, uh, and that's the same – it's the same for a lot of things, movies, music's very similar, where, you know, the it's like risk versus reward. Okay, well – We've got this album. Think about when, when Pink Floyd went to the label and said, we've got this al- album we want to make where we're just going to use uh, kitchen utensils and pots and pans. And, you know, it's it's sometimes the, the label will go, yeah, 
uh, and you know will allow you to do a, a double album where there's no cover, it's just a wall, and it's a concept album, and there's no in, in our eyes, there's no single on there, and that we get the wall, you know, and, and it's like we those those chances were running few and far between until I think people like yourself and independent records came along to give that avenue. And it's incredibly risky business, uh, as Andrew will I'm sure now tell us that you know the money involved is 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 tough. It's very difficult. You know that's why it's like you think, well, what one buying one CD, what difference will it make? I'm here to tell you, it will make an enormous one CD will make an enormous difference. So there will be people listening now who go, I would like to do that. What you what you're doing? I'd like to make my own label. I'd like to take a band and help them and support them making a label at whatever level, a very small level, grassroots, whatever it may be. What do what would you say to those people that are listening now? Go, do you know what? I think I think I want to support my scene and and start a label for bands that I aren't, I don't think are being represented. Well, do it. That's what I would say. Mm. Um, I, I, these days, yeah, what's great is a lot of the independent labels, especially in the in the sort of genres of metal line habit talk to each other and help each other and support each other and um if you want to set up a label yeah all you need to start is a couple of hundred quid that's it you can start a label with a couple of hundred pounds and then just make friends with somebody who runs a label yeah and say to them right any chance you can give me a little bit of advice on how i get started here and someone like me or dan dolby at trepanation or David at um, Surviving Sounds, Frenchie at Surviving Sounds, or Aaron at the Sludge Lord, or all of these little re- labels, we'd all be delighted to sit there and talk the hind legs off of you about how you get going. Uh, when I started, yeah, back in 2017, I had a few hundred quid and I got 200 CDs done for under. And the advice I got was from Chris West of Trippy Wicked, who owned Super Hot Records, and Lee Jones of Riff Rock Records. Uh, those two guys basically held my hand through my first release. Yeah. Without their help and support, I couldn't have started it. Mm. Yeah. But I did. And now APF's uh, getting bigger. It's bigger than a lot of people think it is. But I wouldn't be where I am now without those two guys. And now I'm in this excellent little Facebook group, private group with all these other label owners. And we all share stories and give each other advice and what have you. And it benefits all of us. You know, think, so yeah, to answer your question, to answer your question, if you're thinking of starting a record label, fucking do it. Yeah, because it's it's it, it's 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 everybody sitting at home thinking I I I will do maybe someday. It it we talk about how difficult it is. It is, but the joy of seeing you know the, uh, an album that you've helped release by a band is must be fantastic. Must be superb to see that you know being lauded on get uh, uh, you know good write-ups and that type of thing and people sharing the artwork and that type of when a, when an album becomes not big necessarily but is successful that must be an incredibly rewarding experience for you yeah it Especially is a band yeah. you've, you've introduced definitely uh i mean i i just i love it every time i sign a band release an album and somebody shares a photo of it on mm. facebook i get that kick you know um, yeah. Or I see a comment, someone saying, "Oh my God, this record that APF has released is fucking awesome," and one of their mates goes, "Oh, I'll have to check that out." I'm like, "Yes, oh, happy days." Yeah. Um, so yeah, that is the reward. Uh, yeah. I, I I love it, you know. I I just love releasing great music by great 
bands, many of whom are <clears throat> my mates. They either were before I signed them or they've become my mates afterwards. You know? Yeah. So it's great fun. But I- also, you can just, in terms of starting a record label, all you have to remember is start small. Yeah. Just, just start small and build it up. I've been doing this for five years now. When I started, it was 200 CDs and I shot myself on a paper then. Yeah. Nowadays, it's, you know, releasing a vinyl, 300 copies of that, external PR campaign, advertising, stream, worrying about what's streamed and what's bought and what have you. But that all comes later. You know, you don't suddenly wake up one day and go, right, I'm going to spend £7,000 releasing vinyl. Yeah, yeah. You know, start small and build it up. And Yeah, there's a, there's a beautiful credibility as well to that. Is that, you know, normally when people start something, be it a, a podcast or whatever it is, it normally has to start as big as they can make it, as big as it can be. And in reality, the, the, the record label sort of side of things is something that's beautiful because it's quite small and because it's, 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 it's almost a niche and, and it can grow. And I, I like the fact that uh, you know, some of the, the independents that I support are small. It's, it's a, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's a, there's a closeness to that. It's like I oh. feel they're, they're not necessarily, but I feel as though they're making records for me that they, 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 they oh. kind of go, did. And, and, and that, that's wonderful. And that's something that you can achieve quite quickly on a small level. It doesn't have, you'd, like yeah, you say, you don't have to release a work with uh, you know, the biggest band you can find and spend the most amounts of money you can. You don't. You just have to care enough about the small thing to make that look beautiful, you know, make that look appealing to people. Um, totally. Now, on that, can I, I, I want to give a big shout out to sure. Dan, Dolby, Dan Dolby, who runs trepanation recordings yeah and he was an absolute example of how to do it yeah mm. he started his label because he's totally passionate about really horrible music yeah? <laughs> sure. some of the stuff he releases is way more horrible than the apf does and i say that <laughs> as a compliment yeah but he started just by you know doing small tape runs small cd runs um and just gradually built it up to the point where you know he's now releasing um vinyl for his band Bosphorus and another one um and he's just released a tape for Pupil Slicer who are very much a band at the moment they're signed to Prosthetic but Dan got to release the tape and his label's gone from that one day where he's like right I want to release that really horrible album Mm. 30 tape to where he's now you know releasing across different formats and he's got a reputation and bands and labels know who he am and fair fucking play to the guy yeah yeah I love that shit I love, I always love on this show because I talk to people within the industry as well. I always show them a nice sort of route map. It's like, look, this is like, like, like Dan, look where he's got to, but he started very small. This is what he did. These are the things he did. And look how that built it. It's, and it's, and it's an attainable goal if, you know, if that's the way you want to, want to go. And I love the, I love the fact that it's all past knowledge with each other. I love the fact that there's a group of guys who, who help. I think that's beautiful. It's like learning. It's like a lost art of something, you know, that you can't yeah. learn from a book or, uh, you know, it's this perceived wisdom. I love that. I love the fact that it's, it's passed on from one person to the next. It, it, it somehow makes it even more valuable that you, it's something yeah. you have to talk to other people to progress. I think that's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Well, definitely. And, and you know, I think the final thing I'd say on that is uh, I, I never shy away from the fact that I'm not spring chicken anymore. Yeah, I'm nearly 50. And I release, you know, Sludge, Stone of Doom, Black and Roll, Thrash, Grind. Yeah. Mm. There's a very good chance that in 10 years time, I won't want to be doing this anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't hide from that. You know, some yeah. people, you know, some people want to do this right the way into the 70s. Chances of me wanting to release, you know, underground sludge albums when I'm in my 60s is probably quite small. 
probably question and so me. and so by by now and then you know i want to be handing over apf to someone else mm. and teach and passing on all the information that i've learned over the years that i've been doing it um i, I so yeah cool you know i think that's a that's a it's a beautiful just a sentiment as well uh, if if there will be people that will be fans listening to this now that will will want to maybe get involved with yourself and like you say submit stuff and things like that what are some of the things how would how would, do you like music kind of to be sent to you how how should people get in touch with you if they have something they think you know i think andrew will be interested in this i think it's something that the label might be interested in how do you take submissions what's the preferred sort of way to do that yeah my my preferred route is that somebody is emails me yeah mm-hmm. and that they email me first of all what it is they want me to release which is really important because APF still only four years old. We don't fund recording yet. Mm. Yeah. We release music that's already been recorded, mixed mastered um, with um, a short biography links to things like their social media and band camps and what they want, what they're hoping for from their release. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and as simple as that, where it gets tricky is where, or where it gets a bit boring because so when I say boring. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but we get at the moment on a quiet week, I get 30 submissions. Okay. Yeah. And so if a submission comes through and either the music's not there or it's not easy to find, or there's no bio or there's no links to where I can see what sort of following they've got or anything like that. If it's just an email saying, look, I'm in a band. Are you interested in signing us? Cause if you are, I'll send you a demo. Yeah. Well, what, what effort have you yeah. you know, put into yeah. that? The other thing that I like, and it's not an ego narcissist thing, it's just nice. Yeah. It's yes. where a, you know, a band has done their homework. So mm. you know, I get an email saying, Fairly, the reason why I'm sending you this is because I'm a big fan of Bong Cauldron on your label. Yeah. Or I'm a fan of Indica Blues and they told me about you. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Or you got me into Possessor or something like that. Or it was because of, yeah, it's some kind of real connection other than i saw your name and the word record producer and that's why i'm contacting you it has to be because what you're trying to foster is a relationship you know that this will end up being multiple things that will lead yeah. off from that and it has to be born from a mutual respect of you like the artist and they they, they appreciate what you what you do um that's I also think that there's that, you know it shows that a band have done their homework i'll give you an example on on the apf website there is a page a contact page where there is a little essay from me about what I look for when I sign a band. Yeah. Yeah. And I always know who's read it when I get an email from a band. If they, if they haven't been on the website and haven't seen that, and it's really fucking obvious where it is on the website, if they've not read it, I'll know. Yeah. You must get that. You must get those, those Facebook subscriptions where people just send you a message with a a random link to a YouTube video of their band and stuff. And it's just, it's, you know, that's like, it's the equivalent of walking down the street and knocking on every door and whoever answers yeah. just go, you just go, do you want to, do you want to produce my album? It doesn't work yeah. like that. There has to be a relationship side of it. Uh, that's been a running thread through everything that certainly the, the artists that I've been listening to, I've been working backwards through you, you, the, the back catalog and slowly discovering bands, which is beautiful. I, 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 it, nothing gives me more joy than finding bands. I'm like, fucking hell, how, how have I not heard of Bond Cauldron before? How have I not heard of this band? And so, if we had to, uh, out of all the releases you, you you put out there, if you had to give sort of a, a, a nice sort of track listing of maybe, say, two or three tracks, what would you suggest to someone who wants to hear some of the artists on, on the label? What would you Who would you suggest listening to and what tracks? Uh, 
what I would suggest is one of two things, right? The APF website is quite clever because um, each band has their own page. And if you go on the band's page, there are there is a, uh, a link to their socials, but you can specifically play a track by them, which is linked to Bandcamp. Yeah. Um, or you can click through to a YouTube video like that. Yeah. Or you can just go on Bandcamp to apfrecords.bandcamp.com. And in the music section, there are a number of compilations. I do loads of them. Yeah. Yeah, like 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 uh, we talked about, like the mixtape type of thing is the modern. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, that's the easiest way to do it. Rather than me sit here and try and name tracks because there are thirty bands on this label. <laughs> I wondered if there was any particular because we talked about Under being, you know, obviously the first one, and there's obviously you know, uh, you know, a connection with that. But there was was there, is there was the particular songs and particular releases that that really kind of show when you went to the next level and when you kind of progressed and stuff was. Was the, the remember like we talked about songs being uh, pleasant memories? Do you have them with particular? I mean, I'm sure you love them all equally. It's like asking ask which is your favorite child. But yes. with the what, were the particular songs or particular artists that you were just like that was a a real high point for me. There are game changers. Yeah, or am I asking you to pick your favorite child? <laughs> you are asking me, but what I can, I tell you what I can say is that there were there were certain releases that have changed the game. Mm. Um. Uh, I mean, Under was my first release. Under Slick album will always, I'll always be fond yeah. of because it's my first release. Sure. Bon Coldren's Binge album, I will always be fond because it was my first one on vinyl. Yeah. Um, uh, Mastiff's um, Plague album bore APF to a much wider audience. Mm. Um, more recently, Video Nasty's Dominion album which was a real risk for the label because they were, whilst, you know, individual members had been in other bands, yeah, it was their debut album. We spent a fucking fortune on it, yeah? And I did think, shit, if this doesn't sell, I'm probably going to feel the pain of this one. And mm. it went on to become my biggest seller within a year, you know? So, um, but then I'd also, uh, and again, sorry to all the bands I don't mention, by the way, <laughs> He still you loves know. you. All those bands, he still loves I you. Do. These are just nice I, signposts on a wonderful journey. That's all they are. I love, yeah. I love them all, you know. <laughs> but um, I'm going to pick on Gandalf the Green. I've only released one track by them. A Billion Faces, the 13-minute Stoner Doom epic they gave me in 2019. <laughs> but I pick on them because that's the one occasion where a band has messaged me through, they actually messaged me through Facebook saying, look, Corky from Bong Cauldron says, you might be able to help us with this track. Mm. Do you want to have a listen? And it's the one time where I listened to a track, a 13 minute track. And at the end, seconds after it had finished, I was messaging them saying, do not fucking sign with anyone else until we. <laughs> yeah. Cause it just had that effect. It was, a, it was a guttural, uh, it was your heart. It was uh, just, you know, that's how you felt. Yeah. Everything, my mm. heart, my gut, the, the feeling sick that, thought that somebody else might get to release that track and not me um and then um a couple of hours later because i what i didn't know is that they really wanted to sign to apf i didn't know i just assumed sure. that they were like yeah you know, I, I was going to have to work on them a bit two hours later they're like yep yeah, fairly you can release it and i can remember having that yes fucking <laughs> yes I, when i knew that i had gandalf the green you know you um, can't, you can't just hide that passion. La la ladies and gentlemen, you, we, this is an audio podcast, but we, on screen, you, there, there's a gentleman to my left who is, you can still see, like, that kid that first heard hip-hop and Slayer 
It's the same kid. He's the same kid. He may have glasses and a beard, but the same kid. It's the same kid. Um, so looking forward to some of the releases coming up. Uh, the 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 piston the mastiff one is that is that out or is that coming up? Is that, is that the one coming up? Isn't it? Uh, well, with Pist, Pist are in the studio in May recording their new album. Right. Um, that will be out in early 2022. Right, right. Yeah. Um, Mastiff have recorded their album mm-hmm. um, and are dropping hints about that on social media at the moment. Um, but what else have I got coming up? Uh, well, I've got this video, Nasty's Repress, with the Draw the Shade single. I signed Swamp Coffin recently. Uh, Swamp Coffin are a nasty, filthy sludge band from Rotherham And we have been flirting with each other for well over a year Yeah, me and John Rose Rose for that band Keep messaging each other every now and then And me saying, don't sign to anyone else before you speak to me And him saying, well, when we've got new material, we'll have a chat And then about a week ago, it was like, right, fuck it I've had enough of this flirting Should we just do it or what? And uh, we had a, uh, when I say do it, I mean a Zoom chat. <laughs> we had a Zoom chat that evening and I signed them and they're going to be back in the studio soon. And I'm really excited to put their new one out. I love it. Um, and then there's my new signing that I, I know labels always say this, but I can't talk about it at the moment because I need to announce it first. Oh, sure. That album that I referred to earlier in this chat where I said it's just fucking weird. I'm really looking forward to getting that out. That is going to cause a reaction, that one. Yeah, people are either going to be like, my God, Phil, this is awesome, or I fucking hate it. There's going to be no one that says it's just okay. Well, you know, what a what a beautiful way to, to end this conversation. You know, the, the, essentially, Andrew is in uh, in a filthy metal relationship with, with numerous bands, uh, flirting wildly for the chance to... To put these bands out there because at the end of the day it's it's something that clearly ladies and gentlemen you can't see this i wish you could is still the light behind his eyes is still the one of the what clearly one of the most driven sort of factors in in in, in forming a label and I, I, what i'll do is i will put naturally put links to all some of these bands as well as i work through them i you know work through the, some of the stuff i like as well as the uh, the, the necessary links to the, the the label itself as well what a we 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 could go on and we 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 may well do, but this uh, what a a great guest, ladies and gentlemen. It's been wanted to get someone involved with a, a label for quite some time, and it's nice that the first person is Andrew. Um, I can only say, please listen to uh, the stuff that's get released. I'm working my way through, and it's been a very horrible in a good way journey. Where I'm like each band, I'm afraid to press play. And I think that's what he wanted. I think that's what Andrew wants. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have to get him on again, as I say to virtually every guest. We're going to have to get him again. There's clearly lots to talk about. We probably will. I think we will as we get some to the new releases so we can wax lyrical about those as well. Ladies and gentlemen, awesome. um, Andrew Field, what a great guest. Thank you for coming on to the show, sir. Thank you for coming on. There we go. Yeah, you Good just, uh, the wonderful Andrew Field there uh, from APF Records. Fantastic little sit down with him. And once again, suggested by the fans of the Spoken Metal Show. I wonder what we we call fans of the show. Spoken Metalhead seems doesn't seem to work. Uh, spokes, I don't know. Listen answers on a postcard or uh, suggestions on on social media. As always, though, suggest people that you think we we should be talking to. Listen, you could even go as far to be uh, a dream 
dream show, dream list, someone crazy you don't think I can get or get on the show. We can do that. But it's also, I really like to lean into the, the more unsung heroes. Everybody interviews the famous people. I'd like to talk to people who maybe don't get the recognition they deserve, and they're the gears of war, the defenders of the faith, as I say. And I'd like to talk to them. So if there are people or bands that you think I should sit down and talk to, please, by all means, suggest this this show. And this episode is proof positive that I listen and take that in. And I hope hopefully you can see that, that this is your show. You are a major factor and a major part of it. It was great to sit down with Andrew. I'll probably sit down with him again because it was just such an interesting conversation. There's so much to delve into. I'm most definitely going to go back through everybody's back catalogue and, and certainly with APF Records. I'll list up some playlists when this goes live. I'll spend most of the days around. They're putting up playlists. They've already put special playlists for APF Records, so you can have a sample and see what's going on out there. And tell me who who, you, who you're listening to off, off the off the label. Like I say, Bong Cauldron are particularly big for me at the moment. They're superb. It reminds me of like Hormone and kind of all great sort of sludge and, and stuff that's out there. Fabulous stuff. And I only found that because someone on the group suggested I listen to APF Records and more importantly speak to Andrew. And from that, I found these whole host of, of bands beautiful. That's exactly how it should be. Now, we are getting very, very close to shows coming up. It's very, very close. We've got a special coming up about Metal to the Masses North Wales, the final, which was a lot of fun to put together. That's coming up shortly. And it means now when I have the, the sign-off, you should know that by now that I mean it. I do mean I will see you at a show and we, will, we can talk. You can tell me what bands I need to be listening to. I can talk to the bands you need to talk to me about anything and whatever it may be. But I will, even if I don't listen, I might not speak to you there, but I'll, I'll certainly be in the pit with you. I'll certainly be at the show with you. I won't be sitting backstage or anything like that. I'll be with you guys because I, I, I want to see the pit. I want to be in that that, that 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 stinking pit and the smell of sweat and, and all that. I want that. I miss it. I miss it. I miss the pit and I miss loud music and I miss live music and I miss the, the noise and the energy that comes from it and it's, it's close we're getting we're getting very close to that coming back so believe me when I say we'll see you at the show thanks for listening